Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we talk about Jefferson and politics. And he tells us that he really would have rather stayed at home. Jefferson always said that he would have preferred to be a grandparent and a gardener and a man of letters at Monticello. And whether he really meant it is an interesting question, but he certainly talked that way. We also discussed Madison and Jefferson and their place in creating the modern political system that we still have. James Madison really created the party system, but he needed somebody with great charisma and stature. And he turned to his old and dear friend, the reluctant Thomas Jefferson. And we talked about the election of 1800 and efforts by the Federalists to stop the transition of power. If you think the election of 2020 and its aftermath were interesting, you need to focus on the election of 1800, where we almost came apart. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Sir, there are many citizens during my time who are truly fed up with politics, as I know you are. And yet politics affects us all, whether we pay attention or not. In considering the politics of your time, the author Susan Dunn wrote this. Washington believed in consensus, warning that party spirit was a fire not to be quenched. Adams governed without the support of his own party and sought to repress the opposition party. Hamilton sabotaged his own party's candidate. Not one of them discerned the path that American politics would take. It was Jefferson and Madison who intuitively understood that politicians and voters had to organize into a disciplined majority party in order to wield power in a system of checks and balances. Were you and Mr. Madison that calculating, sir? No, but there's some truth there that, that we were disenchanted with what was happening. We felt that the Federalists who had created the government were taking us down a monarchical path uh, with a national, huge national debt and, and a class system and the government designed to, to aid the wealthiest and most privileged Americans but not to care much for average people and so on. So we believed they had to be stopped and we knew that that was going to take some organization. And so we created a second party uh, and had our first caucus in 1800, that caucus decided I should be the, the, the candidate for the presidency. We had printing presses and we had uh, correspondence around the country and we created a network of, of, of political activists led by Aaron Burr in New York. So we were inventing what would become the party structure of the country, which was unintended, as you know, by the men who made the Constitution in 1787. They, they thought we would be a nonpartisan country, that there would be no need for factions or political parties. Um, and they thought that factions were disloyal. And frankly, when Madison and I helped to create the Republican Party in around 1798 and 9, uh, the Federalists regarded us as potentially treasonous, that, that everyone should stay on board with whatever the ruling elite said was right, and that to challenge that, especially in the public newspapers, certainly was disloyal and, and little short of treason. You and Mr. Madison helped create this political divide. You must admit that. You also, I think, recognized the need for uniting the country again. In fact, in your first inaugural address, uh, you said that Americans had once again united, quote, with one heart 
and one mind. Did you believe that, sir, or were you trying to lead the public a certain way? I believed it up to a point, but of course, I was hoping that I could generate that consensus too. I went on to say every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We are called by different names, men of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. So I was trying to say the election's over now. The principles of 76 have been brought back to the center. We have reason just to calm down and build a kind of general consensus. And it worked. So I, I served for two terms. Uh, I was almost unanimously reelected in, in 1804. When I finished, James Madison served two terms. He was my hand-picked successor. When he retired, our protege, James Monroe, served two terms. Then came John Quincy Adams, who had be kind of become a kind of a Jeffersonian. And so we had almost 30 years of calm, relative calm, where the politics were largely attenuated. And I thought that was a permanent fix. It turns out it wasn't. You would agree, sir, that uh, this country needs a leader who can um, generate some sort of consensus. You need to be able to bind the country together to the extent that that's possible. And not every Federalist came around. And there were radical Republicans on my in my party who were un, unhappy because I was as moderate as I was. So you can't please everybody, but your duty is to bring as many people into the consensus as you possibly can, and then to whenever you have a policy question, to try to think of every side of it and, and to do the least damage to your adversaries, to, to try to accommodate their views of, of this country too, their legitimate views, and if they're wrong, you should be able to convince them, but to just to ride roughshod over them is, is, not a, is not a wise republic. Very good. Thank you so much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir. citizens and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson is portrayed by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson, and seated across from me is President Thomas Jefferson. So good to see you today, sir. Good day to you, citizen. I trust you are well and all is good at your home. Everything is excellent you know, to be surrounded by one's grandchildren. Um, I'm willing to play the fool in a way that I wasn't when I was a parent long ago. And I've been blessed. Uh, my daughter, Martha, uh, has a number of children, um, and many of them live at Monticello. And so uh, this is a time of year when we begin to put fires in the fireplace, and we drink tea more often. Um, and there's kind of a coziness, and we and we often have a habit at Monticello of an afternoon reading time when every person there, whether it's a child, grandchild, cousin, or guest, selects a book, and then we read silently for a time, usually half an hour or more, and no one's allowed to make a peep. And then at the end of that, I conduct a kind of seminar with my family and guests to see what they're reading and what questions uh, they might have. So 
uh, as winter comes, uh, more candles, uh, the nights are longer. Uh, the fireplace uh, is usually on most of the day and night, um, and the fields are quiet. Uh, we still do plant a little thimble of lettuce every Monday, um, just on the hopes that that crop will survive even the winter in uh, Albemarle. Well, very good, sir. Uh, we would call that period of your life retirement during my time, and I'm so so glad to hear that you're enjoying it, but you were not always at Monticello. And in fact, you were 57 years old when you left Philadelphia in May of 1800 to return to Monticello. You'd been vice president, and as such, you were the presiding officer in the Senate, where it is said you didn't feel they had enough business to occupy it for a half hour a day. You didn't enjoy politics, but there you were, a prisoner of it. I suspect you were quite pleased to return home and would have been even more pleased at the opportunity to just stay there. I'd never really intended to be a national figure. I became one because of the revolution, that I was the most reluctant of all of the national figures of our time. Uh, I was the ambassador to France, came back in November of 1789 after five years, only to discover that the new president, George Washington, had made me his first secretary of state. So I had been looking forward to a period of time at Monticello, which was in desperate need of my attention, both financially and in terms of its building. Uh, and I had planned eventually, after a leave of absence, to go back to France uh, to uh, see the French Revolution through. But now I went to work for the Washington administration, first in New York and then in Philadelphia. And, sir, I found it so disagreeable. The hatreds, the innuendo... Uh, the character assassinations, the deliberate misrepresentations of, of other people's points of view, that I I found no joy in it, I, and I wanted to escape. I tried several times to retire before I finally did. And when I retired at the end of 1793 and the beginning of 1794, I went back to Monticello, and, and frankly, I expected to spend the rest of my life quietly there. I did not expect to come out to become the vice president under John Adams in 1796. And I certainly at that time did not expect to become the third president of the United States. So agriculture is my passion, and books, and mathematics, and gardening. Uh, politics is a disagreeable um, entity that we're unfortunately forced to attend to if we want to live in freedom. But I would have, I think, been a much happier man had I never gotten involved. It is said that your daily schedule at Monticello began at dawn or earlier, uh, where you would spend the first few hours of your day reading and working on your correspondence before joining the rest of the household for breakfast. You were an early riser, and you wasted no time in getting to the business of the day, sir. You are correct. I, I later said that the sun never anticipated me that in, in the dawn of the morning, uh, I would see that the light was forming in the east. But before the sun rose, I would get up. And I would often take a very short little stroll just outside my suite of rooms at Monticello. Um, or I would go straight to my writing table and begin to handle my immense correspondence. You have no idea what a burden 
this correspondence was. This was a time when letters really mattered. It was our way of communicating. I received thousands of them because I was an, a pivotal figure in all of this. And I had both uh, admirers and detractors and, and, and others who just wanted my opinions about things. And I felt as a moral uh, duty for me to rep respond. There are very few letters that I didn't uh, respond to. So this kept me chained to my writing table for hours per day, often writing to people I, I never met or expected to meet. But this was just part of the life of the 18th century. But I also usually, almost every day, bathe my feet in cold water for a time for 15 or 20 minutes. I believe that's the sovereign that drives away flus and agues and colds. So my routines were, were pretty rigid. As you say, sir, you, you would really have had no problem leaving politics behind you. Uh, you called it a duty and a torment, and then a letter said that science was your true passion. And science, of course, then meant something different from what it means in your time. It meant knowledge. So I, I would have liked to be a planter and a gardener and an amateur scientist and what was then known as a man of letters, somebody who wrote pamphlets and some books and, uh, of course, had a heavy correspondence, particularly with other like-minded intellectuals from around the country and from around the world. That was my delight. I think I was fitted for that. I think if I could have had any fate in the world, it would have been to have a garden somewhere in a perfectly temperate climate away from the city, but close enough to take a bucket or basket of vegetables in from time to time. And just to, to live in that agrarian model of life, something always growing, something fresh from the garden at the table, um, orchards, possibly vineyards. Uh, I always wanted to make my own wine. I was never actually able to do it because it takes so long to, to perfect this process. But that was, that was what I wanted from life. I, I didn't expect a revolution, of course, when I was a young man. Who could have expected that? I expected to live and die a British citizen. I, I knew I had probably duties because I came from a the gentry, my father had been a justice of the peace and a map maker. I, I reckoned that I would be called upon in some sense, might, in some very remote sense, I suppose I could have been elected to the House of Burgesses or even governor. But those weren't parts of my dream. You know, there are professional politicians like Aaron Burr, and there are people that are hungry for power like Alexander Hamilton. But George Washington was reluctant always about power, and that's why he's the greatest American. And I modeled myself after him and after Cincinnatus from the ancient world, but no part of me had political ambition. And, and, and I know that that sounds paradoxical because I held so many offices in the course of my life, including two terms as president. But I didn't enjoy it very much. You know, I saw it as a duty. The country needed it. I, I, I do believe they needed uh, a, to turn away from the, the high-handedness and the centralization and the proto-monarchical rights and methods of the first two presidencies, George Washington and John Adams. So I ran for president, if you can call it that, in 1800, not because I wanted to be president, but because I thought I was going to help save the country. And, and when the election was successful, I called that the Second American Revolution. Uh, because I believe that we, we, we restored the country to the principles of 1776 just in time, sir. 
politics, it seems, would not let you go, as you've alluded to. And I, I mentioned you working on your correspondence every day, and so did you. But we know from these letters that much of this correspondence was political in nature. But it, at that time, you tried to keep your distance, didn't you? I tried to take always things by their smooth handle. That was one of my ten personal commandments, and it was the central one. I'm a harmony lover and even a harmony obsessive, and I hate conflict. It is likely to make me withdraw. I'm thin-skinned, I will admit, and take personally some of these attacks, even though I know I shouldn't. And I tried to avoid open conflict with anyone, and I modeled myself in many respects on Dr. Franklin, who had no enemies. Sir, you, you, you must have accepted at some point that your political career was not over, or, or did you know this all along? No, I didn't think that I would be president. I don't put myself in the same category as George Washington. I don't even put myself in the same category as John Adams, although I think I was a better public figure than John Adams. But I saw myself as a very competent administrator with a very strong commitment to the rights of man and a belief that humans are equal to the, to the challenge of governing themselves and that we need less government rather than more and we should be fiscally conservative with respect to public funds and taxation. So those were my principles, and I saw those principles being ignored and even despised by the high federalists, men like Hamilton. And I decided, therefore, that, that if we really wanted to live in a republic, their movement would have to be stopped. Federalism would have to be checked, that, that we had to contest the future. I, I didn't think this would happen. I thought once the revolution had occurred, we all more or less agreed that we wanted a republic, and some wanted um, a more high-toned republic and some less, but I thought we all agreed. But it turns out we didn't. And the struggle for the meaning of the revolution uh, lasted the next 20-some years, certainly during the 1790s, which were the most difficult decade of my life. And I stood for the presidency, pushed forward, I must admit, by my friend James Madison, who was a much more political creature than I was. But I dreaded it. I, I called it splendid misery, and, I, and I, I panted for the time when I would be able to leave it all behind. So if it had never happened, if there'd never been a revolution, you might have heard of me for some agricultural improvements in Western Virginia. So because I thought that the future of American liberty was at stake, I let myself be pushed forward and, as you know, became the third president of the United States on March 4th, 1801, and I did my job as, as uh, well as I possibly could and retired at the earliest convenient time. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. Welcome back, Mr. Jefferson. Thank you, sir. We've been talking about uh, this period prior to your election in 1800, how you returned to Monticello. But in essence, you became the face and the leader of the new Republicans, sir. Yes, I suppose so. You know, it, it doesn't hurt to have written the Declaration of Independence. And I wrote the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty. And it was clear to, to anyone who had looked into my work that I was in favor of more rather than less um, enfranchisement, that I believed that average human beings are equal to the task of, of looking after their own interests, that less government is always better than more, that we should trust people more than we have done, and if we don't trust them, we should educate them better at public expense. So I have, I have great faith in the people, which was not shared by some of my Federalist friends. They had varying degrees of jaundiced or disenchanted views of the people. Sometimes they called them the mob. And I believe that government really consists of a few plain men doing a few simple tasks. And so I think I'm important for what I, what I stand for, what I represent, my, my, the values that I tried to promote and embody. But I'm not important in any other way. But I had a visibility that Mr. Madison didn't. I'm tall. Tall never hurts. I was a, a spirited horseman. Uh, that always helps. Uh, I, I was I had a reputation for being an inventor and an, and an intellectual and a man of languages and so on, and that can cut both ways in a democracy. But there was then a level of of deep respect for those achievements, and I I had a felicity with expression. I wasn't an orator; that was one of my weaknesses. But I could write a very strong letter or pamphlet or broadside. And so I had those talents, if you want to call them that, and I had a visibility. You know, Mr. Madison would rightly have been the third president, but he, he was a very short man, just under, just over five feet tall. He dressed in black. He had a, a kind of dour expression. Uh, he was timid. He, he didn't have enough of what you would call charisma. He didn't have enough presence to represent our party by himself. I had that cachet, so he pushed me first. And then after I had served two terms, I was able to make it possible for him to be the next president because he'd been my very able secretary of state and everyone knew he was, he was my political partner. Whether he could ever have been elected to the presidency without my having been there first is, I think, an interesting question. Perhaps he would have, but I was able essentially to, to name him as my successor, although the radical Republicans and even my friend James Monroe thought for a brief time of contesting his nomination. They did not. So I suppose that I was the figurehead of this emerging People's Party. But uh, you know, I'm a. I have to say, sir, I'm, I'm. I'm not a. I'm not a populist in the street. I, I. I keep. I keep somewhat aloof. I live on a mountain. I, I keep my arms folded across my chest. I'm very stiff at first meetings. I don't give stump speeches. I don't go out and shake a lot of hands or kiss babies. And so I'm not a. I'm not an ideal candidate. But 
uh, but I but I had a certain reputation that made it easier to elect me than Mr. Madison. This republicanism that you represented was, in fact, a, quite a radical departure from the position that the party in power, the Federalists, held. They were not very impressed with you in spite of your reputation as a, as a true gentleman, an intellectual with a record of distinguished public service. They saw you almost as a villain, one who would destroy the nation given the chance. And of course, they were wrong about that. But I understand that they had this concern. In other words, they had come together. This is George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and John Adams and Rufus King and John Jay and Fisher Ames and a whole range of other people. They had come together and, and built a government. I was out of the country when the Constitution was written. It became clear that George Washington would would be the first president and, and, and preside for the rest of his life if he wished to. And they had all this power. that They, they designed the system. I mean, these are brilliant men who, who deserve to be uh, honored, celebrated um, by everyone who loves liberty. But when they got into power, their imaginations failed them, and they began to ape English models of class hierarchy and aristocracy and ritual and ceremony, levies and some ceremonial swords. And George Washington wouldn't shake hands with average Americans. He bowed stiffly to them and all, all this um, silly European court behavior. And the Federalists also had an insufficient commitment to the to the actual people of the country. I mean, they, they, they believed that they were a special elite, and of course they were, that had special insights into the nature of, of government and human nature, and therefore we should defer to them to govern on our behalf without really consulting us, you know, having our interests in mind, but not really consulting us, and that if we just kept out of it, minded our own business, went about our daily lives and and yielded our sovereignty to this group of, of of elite gentlemen led by Mr. Hamilton, that they would do good things for us. And in some ways they did. But that's not the spirit of this thing. The spirit is that humans are sovereign and and humans create government to to protect their rights and to do certain public things. And that the people are not just the, the ultimate foundation of, of legitimacy. The government has to go back to the people periodically, again and again and again, for their instructions. The people have to be dealt in. They have to be taken seriously. They can't be despised. And if you despise them and you want to govern on their behalf, you really don't understand America. And that's the fact that Hamilton didn't understand America. He really should have been British. John Adams... And George Washington were much better men than Hamilton, but they both were insufficiently bold in understanding what was coming, that this was going to be the world's first popular democracy in some sense of that term. They dreaded that. There are things to be concerned about in that, don't get me wrong, but we can't dread it. And even if we do, we have to go with it anyway because the people are sovereign. I don't know how many different ways to say this. The people have a right to govern themselves, period, any way they wish, badly or well. It sounds as if uh, the Federalists felt entitled to stay in power. In fact, John Jay, the governor of New York, wrote that, quote, those who own the country 
ought to participate in the government of it. Uh, and I know you believe something quite different. The Jeffersonian Republicans, they promoted a platform of change and hammered their points home, uh, in particular going after President Adams for the Sedition Act, which really was an attempt to legalize suppression of those who opposed the Federalists. Um, they cautioned the need for uh, your Republicans, cautioned in, in the need for a standing army, uh, which they believe could be used as a another means of stopping citizens' dissent. Republicans stood for simple government, low taxes and free schools. And you criticized the Federalists, saying they cared only for the rights of the social and financial elite and ignored the rights of the many. Is that is that accurate, sir? Yes, almost entirely. So, you know, they cared mostly for their cronies, for other privileged white individuals, people of the upper classes, people of economic um, wealth, people with large amounts of property, people who dressed in breeches and silk hose and so on. That that was their primary constituency, and those those individuals, a very tiny number, by the way, in this country, were their were their beneficiaries. And when they looked at at the, the mass of people, there were six million of us in uh, at the time of my inauguration. When they looked at the mass of those people, they just saw ignorant rural farmers who weren't qualified to think about the great questions of of human rights or governance or separation of powers or constitutions, that the people were simpletons and the people needed to be governed the way a parent would govern a four-year-old child. And, and they made that clear. And that, that alone is offensive to me. But then the idea that they were really dealing benefits to each other you know the, the the assumption bill of the national debt, the national bank bill, uh, the way that that Hamilton got investors for the bank. Uh, these were all attempts to bind the most privileged white families to the to the survival and 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 strength of the of the United States government. It, it was government for the elites, and then the regular people were just meant to get along as best they could. It's not that the Federalists didn't think about the people. They did. George Washington loved the people of the United States, but they didn't really feel familiar with them. And they certainly didn't think that average people should be entrusted with the levers of power. So we come to the election of 1800. Uh, that fall, most of the members of the Electoral College had already been chosen. And you, sir, were in that mix pitted against your old friend, then President John Adams. It was clear that you and your running mate would defeat Adams um, but due to flaws and some snafus in the voting system, you and Mr. Burr each received 73 votes, a tie. And this was an, uh, a, 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 an unanticipated situation, was it not? Yes. What was wrong was the way the Electoral College had been set up in Philadelphia. So um, each elector voted for the person of their choice, but they had to vote for a second person not of their own state. So in Virginia, an elector might have voted for me as the president, but he couldn't vote for James Madison in the same poll. It had to be for someone that was not a Virginian. And so, and there was no differentiation under the original constitution of polling for the president and polling for the vice president. So 
the idea was that the most respected person would be president, and the second most respected person would be vice president. And this is actually what happened in the administration of George Washington. He was unanimously selected as the first president, and John Adams uh, was the next, was the runner-up, you would say. And so he became vice president. Parties hadn't yet gelled, hadn't, hadn't come into being. So by the time I stood for the presidency in 1800, parties were beginning to, just beginning to have a, a recognizable presence in American life. And so we had a strategy, and that was that I would defeat John Adams, and I did, 73 to 69 in the Electoral College, but that the, the electors around the country would throw away a couple of votes that would not go to Aaron Burr so that he would not tie. So I would get 73, he might get 72 or 71, Adams 69. So we would accomplish the goal, but we had to throw away a vote somewhere. Otherwise, uh, Burr and I would tie. And if we did, that would automatically create a constitutional problem because then it goes to the House of Representatives, which votes by state, one vote per state. And the House is is empowered to do whatever it wants at that point. It, it could it could it could vote for the the Grand Lama or the Pope um, as president at that point. I guess what struck me and and help me if I get this incorrect, sir, but this provided the Federalists with an opportunity to delay the transition of the presidency or perhaps even block it. History tells us that there were, in fact, Federalist plots to ignore the Constitution to retain the presidency. Federalists felt that if they prevented the final results until after Mr. Adams' term expired on March 4th, they had a chance to regain the presidency. Uh, Mr. Jefferson, you wrote, this opens upon us an abyss at which every sincere patriot must shudder. It must have made you shudder, sir. It did. So here we were in the first real transfer of power in, in the history of our republic, from the Federalists to the Republicans, from one group of men to another. And uh, instead of accepting the results, uh, the outgoing Federalists were so angry and bitter and so in such disbelief that, that, that they could lose the respect of the American people that some of them, not all of them, but some of them uh, thought that they should override the will of the people. And there were several ways to do that. If they delayed long enough, then we'd have a power vacuum and maybe Adams would just stay in power or the president of the Senate would become the president pro tem or they might turn elsewhere by legislative fiat to somebody else, John Marshall, who knows. But there were a number of, of scenarios that were being spun out by the Federalists to deny me my election. Now, keep in mind that everybody knew that I had been elected to the presidency. There were not election deniers. There were result refusers. So they weren't denying the legitimacy of the election. What they were doing is trying to prevent uh, me from becoming the third president of the United States. And this went on for 36 ballots. And finally, sir, they gave up. But I, I, I had made it clear during that interim that I was not going to make any radical or ruthless immediate changes in the government. And so once that became clear, that, that I was going to be essentially moderate or gradualist in my emphasis as president, it's not that they came to accept me, but they realized that they could probably live with me. Well, I, I have to bring it up, sir, because you, as you know, I know you follow political occurrences during my time. I, you know, we recently had a situation somewhat like this, and 
you know, the pundits, the writers all say, well, this is the first time in American history something like this has ever happened. But in fact, it <laughs> it happened during your presidency or before you became president. And when I said abyss, sir, I meant it. I mean, we were in some very dangerous ground. If if the Federalists had voted Burr in instead of me, it it might have it might have killed the constitutional system because there would be such a legitimacy problem that there would be people who would never accept that. They would know better. They would they would know that it was uh, that it had been done as a coup d'etat rather than as a an actual constitutional result. Or if they had succeeded in in preventing the transition, maybe Adams would have stayed president and who knows what that would have led to, sir? Well, he would have been a good enough continuing president, but it's the death of the Constitution. Our system requires that level of civility and um, and sustainability of our constitutional system. And the minute you violate it, then it becomes easier to violate the constitutional structures in all sorts of, of other ways. And so I actually helped, I think, move things forward a little bit when I said, all right, well, maybe we need a new constitutional convention to clear some of these things up. And that terrified the Federalists because they knew that a second constitution would be more Democratic, more small-R Republican than the one that was ratified in 1788. And they were terrified that I would actually push for a new constitutional convention. Very good, Mr. Jefferson. In closing this part of our conversation, uh, again, it was called the Second American Revolution. But it really wasn't so much a revolution as it was what you saw as a return to the principles of the American Revolution. Is that fair to say? Yes, but it was a revolution in this sense. We were moving down a path towards a hierarchical society like Britain's. So it wasn't just that we went back to the principles of 1776. We had to stop the trajectory of a party of men who had authoritarian instincts. And so by doing it successfully at the ballot box without a single rifle being fired, we proved that humans can make these fundamental changes on their own behalf for their own public happiness. And luckily, John Adams cooperated. And much more than the Federalists, luckily the Federalists in the end acquiesced if they hadn't, we might not be having this conversation, sir. Very good, and I thank you for this conversation, Mr. Jefferson. Always a pleasure to speak with you. I trust the people. Uh, they sometimes make mistakes, but in the long run, they do more justice than any other body of men whatsoever. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be speaking with the gentleman who portrays President Jefferson, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson, and now your weekly conversation with the gentleman who portrays Mr. Jefferson, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And uh, Clay, I have to thank you for this conversation this week. You know, years ago, you recommended a book to me by Susan Dunn, Jefferson's Second Revolution. And I uh, due to a recent conversation, I got it out and started to reread it. And it's really a terrific book. Um, I can't recommend it enough. But a couple things she wrote. She wrote, under Jefferson and Madison, radical revolutionary ideas, equality, majority rule, self-interest, democracy had entered the mainstream of American politics. The old style of elitist differential politics was gone for good. The year 1800 had witnessed a revolution. Um, and, and she goes on to write that Jefferson and Madison had so much to do um, with what our political system has become now. She says the two friends proved to be effective opposition leaders who created party structures, mechanics, and election strategies that would define American politics far into the future. They had even recognized and exploited the novel role that partisan newspaper editors would play in the glamorous political life of the country. I got to thank you again for recommending that book. I do like Susan Dunn's work, and that's a, that's a fascinating book. There are a bunch of them on this subject. And, you know, it's it's a little bit like the end of the Trump administration and all that followed, including January 6th and the refusal to hand over power peacefully, and the, the denial of the of the legitimacy of the election, you know, et cetera, all, the, the whole package that we're all aware of. Uh, that makes the election of 1800 start to stand out because it's another one like this. It, it has some of the same features in it. And so I never took it as seriously until I now take it very seriously because now we know what's at stake. So was it a second American revolution? The question that they were facing, David, is such a fascinating one, and that is, are we serious or aren't we? You know, from 1774, all these pamphlets and broadsides and speeches and columns in newspapers that talked about the people and sovereignty and people should govern themselves, they're born with natural rights. All this is, is floating around, percolating through the American social system. But most people didn't actually believe it. You know, that's just like, it's, it's, it's the way you hear people talking before an election in our time. They don't actually believe it, but they say it because it's, you know, it works. It's agreeable. It's, it's it's flattering to the people. But Jefferson and Madison were saying, hey, let's try it. Let's let's see if we can't let people actually, for the first time in human history, govern themselves, whether they're a, a mechanic or a farmer or a farm laborer or somebody who sells insurance or somebody who's a small shopkeeper or a barrel maker. We should maybe believe that they, too, can participate in a significant way in governing themselves. So they were saying, we're going to take the American revolutionary ideology seriously, not without some restraining mechanisms. But that wasn't going to happen with Hamilton and Adams. And so in that sense, I think it does qualify as a revolution because, as Susan Dunn points out, things are never going to be the same. And pretty soon, just a few presidency later, comes Andrew Jackson, who's a true populist. I think one of the things, well, for me personally, I hope for our listeners too, but one of the things that really sort of comforts me, you know, I miss talking to Jefferson if I don't get a chance. History can comfort us by saying, well, you know, yeah, you might have it pretty bad, but it's happened before. 
And and that's one of the things about this election of 1800 that really strikes me is a we're in this period now where it's like this has never happened before. You know, they they almost stole an election or some people think they did steal an election. Well, it did happen before and it happened in 1800. And there's historical record of it. There was a Federalist plot to try to keep Jefferson out of office. Uh, so there's some similarities there. Or, or am I stretching this too far? No, of course there are. Eight, and there are more. I mean, so the first one is the election of 1800. Then there's the election of 1824, where through a kind of a backrooms bargain, John Quincy Adams, who did not have a majority, winds up being the president of the United States. And that has been the subject of um, great scrutiny. And of course, it's so upset Andrew Jackson, who was the should have won the election, that he it only deepened his, um, his radical and angry nature once he did become the president of the United States four years later. Then comes 1860, where um, new parties are being formed, old parties are being discredited, Lincoln wins the presidency, and instead of hanging in there to see what this portends, the southern states seceded from the Union and, and, and touched off a civil war that wound up killing uh, almost 800,000 Americans. So, you know, an enormous percentage of the population is, is, is killed or maimed in a civil war that is another election crisis. And this is a little bit different, but in 1968, you know, every city in America was burning or race riots all over, the, the, the assassinations of, of Robert Kennedy and of Martin Luther King, the war, the protests of the war, the returning veterans, the veterans against the war led by people like John Kerry. This country was a, was a civil mess. It, it felt to many that we would collapse, and the violence we saw after the George Floyd killing was nothing compared to the violence and the burnings that came in, the, in 1968 and 1969. And you know what? We got through it. And Nick, Richard Nixon was elected to, on, the, on the platform of maybe restoring some order to, to the country. And, he, and in many respects, he did. We jump forward from 2016 to 2020, and we see a nihilist who pre-declares that he won't accept the results of an election that he doesn't win. So that's never happened before, you know. And the question is, what do you do about it? And there are people that say that this is okay, that, you know, that, that, that this, is, this is an acceptable sort of thing. But you know what? It isn't because democracy depends so much on civic virtue and civic consensus and a belief in order and a belief in peaceful um, methods and a belief that, that we have counting system better than any in the world ever. You know, we can count the votes of 150 million people almost uh, within hours. We have this incredible system of actually hearing what the people intend. And so after all that, after you bring science and computing and mass gathering of data into the picture, then for someone to say, oh, well, this was a corrupted or stolen election is just perfectly nihilist. It's it, 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 it's anarchy because it it, it, it actually challenges the idea that there can be a rule of law and a normal order of things. And so this is one of those inflection points. And the question is, the only question for us now is this one. Is this going to get worse than maybe the end of the republic? Is this going to die down? And there will be some lingering bitterness, but 
we've seen, we've peaked or are about to peak? Or is this the harbinger of a new era in which our Constitution is not going to be able to hold up against the pressures on it from a whole range of directions and not just election deniers? And I, I don't think we know the answer to that question. But you, I think you would say, well, the fact that we've been there before suggests we'll probably get through it somehow. Um, I, I, hope, I hope you're right. I would like to be able to say that. I, I have to say first that I agree with everything you just said, pretty much everything. You well, that's just a said. first. However, <laughs> to bring up another side, you're, during our lifetime, our lifetimes, um, there's two presidential elections that are suspect. One would be Kennedy's, and then there's Al Gore and George Bush, who there were still questions about that. So it's not like we haven't ever been through it before, but I do agree. It's the first time somebody has been um, so childish to say, you know, I want my ball back. Uh, I don't believe you. Uh, and and that that that's disturbing. But, you know, in the long haul, I think we'll get over that. Well, just a couple of quick things. 1960, it seems clear to me that Richard Nixon probably did win the election of 1960. And on that night, he was urged by his most intense partisans to demand a recount, to challenge, to refuse to concede. And he thought about it because he was pretty sure that the Kennedys, along with Richard Daley and, and LBJ's machine in Texas, had had uh, not stolen the election, but, but rigged it a little bit. He decided not to because he said it would be bad for the country. And he said two things. This will go on for a long time, and that creates a problem, especially during the Cold War, because we need to have a president uh, that is re recognized as the chief and especially commander-in-chief of the country. And secondly, he said, what if I'm wrong? What if they do all this checking and, and it, it proves that Kennedy won after all? Then I'll be seen as Mr. Sour Grapes. Then, uh, then I'll just be looked upon as a person who couldn't accept the results of an election. And so he didn't. But even in his memoirs much later after Watergate, he said, you know, it's pretty clear to me that I could successfully have challenged that election. So then move forward. So he's a statesman. And by the way, when the Supreme Court voted that the tapes must be released, he released the tapes. He, he was a constitutionalist at heart in spite of the chaos and Watergate and so on. Secondly, in, in Gore v. Bush, I think the results appear to be correct, that Bush won. But the way it was sorted out caused a legitimacy crisis and... Which has not ended, and, and it set in tone some other legitimacy crises that have come since. And so the Supreme Court, I don't think, should have weighed in as it did along purely partisan lines to stop the recount. If the recount had gone forward, or maybe several recounts, we might not have had a president until January 20th. It might have gone on another month. But I think in the end, uh, Bush would have prevailed and we'd be in a lot better shape because then it would have been, well, that's, we've counted and we've counted and we've counted. And it appears that he did win. I can only look through my lifetime and the history that I've read, what I've learned from you. Um, you know, it uh, it, it kind of goes back to the era of the assassination of Kennedy. All of a sudden, Americans didn't believe in their government. It sort of started there, for me, anyway. And and then we see this line of events where people trust the government less and less and less and less. And yet, <laughs> we're not involved um, you know, that's something we talk with Jefferson about a lot, that, you know, the, the responsibilities of citizens to pay attention to politics. It's hard. You know, so much is going on at so many different levels. And, and 
that you know there's the there's the, the local city commission and there's the county commission there's the school board uh, and then there's the state legislature and then there's the government of the United States and you know the the news the media whatever their problems are 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 bringing information or or at least attention to such a a dizzying array of major issues whether it's Brittany Griner uh, in a Moscow jail or uh, North Korea lobbing missiles over the Japanese mainland or um, a potential railroad strike in the United States or uh, releasing oil from the uh, the strategic reserve and so on. I mean, there were the number of issues, no person can keep up with it. it. It's not simple. And and it's so transparent now that, that the average citizen just goes about their daily business. Just one thing about, about the assassination of John Kennedy. I do think that you're right about this, that when the Warren report came out that following fall, like 20-some percent of the country immediately said, no, that's not... That is not a real report that provides an actual analysis of just what happened. That is, that is a shaped narrative, and so I think I think the people were right. I don't know that the people under I don't know that that there was a second gunman. Let's leave that out of the picture. But the Warren report itself caused a legitimacy crisis because it was so clearly shaped with an outcome in mind to close the to close the books on this to have a crazy lone gunman to rule out the conspiracies of the CIA or ex-CIA or FBI or mafia or Russia and then we walked into Vietnam and well you know what a what a chaos that was and once again the government had really messed up but then you think of John Kennedy being killed on November 22nd 1963 we, we both know where we were uh Lyndon Johnson had to decide, now what on Vietnam? We don't know what would have happened if John Kennedy had lived. But I think it's pretty clear that Lyndon Johnson was put into an almost impossible predicament, and he handled it badly. But if Kennedy had lived, at least he would have, he had real ambivalence about the, uh, the future of American presence in Vietnam. LBJ did not at least in his policy choices. So, you know, so much pivots on such small things. But I guess the point we've made is there's a lot of rockiness in American history. We've had several assassinations, Lincoln, Garfield, uh, Kennedy, McKinley, uh, and nearly Reagan. And FDR uh, survived a, a, a shooting in uh, Miami just before he took office in 1933. So, so violence has been a part of this. Corruption has been a part of this. Civil war has been a part of this. Election chicanery has been a part of it. And we've muddled through all this time. But I think I think that presentism is a mistake, David. Like thinking, oh, this is the worst time. Oh, well, it's never been like this. It's uniquely bad. Uh, I, I, I agree with your cautionary note on all of that. But I do think it's very widely held by people who do a lot of thinking and reading that we're in real trouble. So what that means, I don't know, but I, don't you agree that there's a there's a huge consensus amongst the thinking classes that we're dancing around on a precipice here? Yeah, well, we've been there before, I guess is what I would say. <laughs> Let's keep dancing, all right? I hope you're right. I'm getting my parachute. Well, before we go, I, I we're talking about Kennedy, and uh, there's a Kennedy-Jeffersonian connection, an introduction you recall so Kennedy was uh, 
hosting a dinner at the White House for, uh, I think, 35 Nobel Prize laureates. Uh, and, and a speech had been written out for him by his staff. And I've actually seen the speech, and he carried it in his own handwriting. But he says, um, at some point, this is the largest gathering of intellect in the history of this house, except possibly when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. I love that. This is a truly great tribute. Uh, yeah. Kennedy had that capacity. He had that capacity. We're out of time this week. I thank you for a great conversation. Before we go, uh, you just came back from a great cultural tour in France, and I know you're very excited about one coming up in Greece. So in the few moments we have left, do you want to tell people about that? France was fabulous, and they were all Jefferson Hour people. We had a great time. We're going again in 2024, so watch for that. But it was just magic in every way. Um, I learned a lot. You know, Jefferson was right. France is an absolutely amazingly civilized country in, in all sorts of ways. Now we're going to Greece next September 15th through 23rd. Homeric Greece, classical Greece. I was trained as a classicist before I fell into tights. Um, and so that's next year, September 15th through 23rd. And then this summer, we still have a couple of places on the Salmon River trip, July 31st till August 8th. It's a uh, float trip on, on a class four a river, one of the great um, secrets of the American West, the middle fork of the Salmon River. So people can go to jeffersonhour.com for all of that. But next year, Greece, and the year after that, back to France. We'll see you all next week for another exciting edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson.